Thank you very much, John. Very stimulating, and I'm sure a good start to our discussion. So we can invite the uh, speakers up to the panel, and uh, we can open up the discussion. You've all been listening, so it's an opportunity for you now to make any points or ask any questions. Can we just ask the... But, sorry, before the question, can we ask this chap here to make a comment? He's been involved with lots of eye contact with me during the uh, discussions. And just say who you are, please. Yes. Thank you. My name is Mathieu Leclerc. I work with the industry. And my comments will be not on behalf of any company, but on myself and 20 years in the medtech industry. Uh, I think you're right. The, the medtech industry in particular is looking for small increments and is, doesn't want any risk. Uh, so, because of the risk of developing, risk of adoption, time to uh, get a return on investment. The other thing is the kind of a rule of thumb in, in the medtech industry is that the good ideas come from people who use the products, so from the doctors, the, the best, the blockbusters of the medtech industry come from ideas of the physicians. So, this, these are the two forces. On the one hand, we know we need to work with universities and hospitals to get the ideas because we, we're pretty stupid. But we don't want any risk. So I think, John, you nailed it on the head. We, we need a way to de-risk the science so industry can take on. But I think a, a problem there is that industry have looked to physicians who are working in the cath lab putting in devices. On the whole, they are not very creative people. I find that immensely boring. Who would want to stand in a cath lab for 10 hours a day? Uh, sorry, 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 guys. <laughs> sorry, guys. But the advances will come from a combination of, of that clinical understanding with scientists from the university who are doing true creative biological discovery. And it's that element that, that's been missing that we have to put into it. Yeah, Julian and I were just wondering, is there anybody in the room you haven't insulted yet? We concluded the topic's probably <laughs> just a photographer. Um, <laughs> Perhaps I, perhaps I can add a, a comment to that. I think there's an additional uh, but very important factor, which is <clears throat> around organisational culture and the impact that has on how people think about time. Is that on? Is that on? Yeah. In academia, people can quite often think many years ahead. I mean, uh, the other day I was in a meeting when somebody was talking about a tw their 20-year research programme, <clears throat> and that's... Uh, not that uncommon, you probably know that. Uh, in industry, and in particular in the devices uh, industry, you know, this month is medium term. <laughs> Tomorrow's sales figures are short term, and, and next year is really the long term. And it's, it's very hard to, um, to get industry to... I think industry needs to be more imaginative in the, how it thinks about time, and needs to be prepared to think a little longer term um, than, uh, you know, the next year's sales figures. Yeah, one of the, one of the um, things that we've been looking at strategically, and, and it plays to what John was saying, really, about changing the relationships with industry. If you look at the way uh, we all get funding from uh, traditional research bodies, we, we put in grants, and we've got some uh, uh, credibility in those areas, having published extensively. And generally, you get a grant which is relatively low risk, as you said, because the critics will say you'll never work if you put anything in that's too ambitious. Um, and, and that's the difficulty we face. What we've decided to do in the BRC, although we haven't really pushed this out across the organization yet, is to say, turn it the other way around, and in many ways, approach it like you suggested, and say, well, what are the big questions? What are the fundamental problems that need to be addressed? 
and actually flag them up as things that you're actually working on. So, because one of the problems is you get some scientists who are working in specific small areas don't realize the potential application of that to, to some of the big fundamental questions that people are trying to address. So if you invert your funding and say, uh, we're tackling this problem, we're tackling actually, for example, brain cancer, which has really had nothing happen for the last 40 years. So you say, how do we approach that? You build the teams of people that get together and say, we've got ideas in this area, we've got ideas in that area. And we've never done that with our funding structures in the same way. We're very focused um, questions. So, I mean, I'm just wondering whether you feel um, that will uh, bring about uh, a change in the way scientists engage in trying to address some of these questions, not least of all because if you target the question at an area in which industry is interested, that might be a way of encouraging them into the game in terms of saying, well, let's try and do this together in partnership. Let's actually try and develop these kind of relationships that allows you to utilize our resources. Several people wanted, yeah. but this chap had his hand up first. Yeah. Yeah. I'm uh, Terence Stevens, and I'm chair of the Academy of Medical World Colleges. I might take issue with John's <laughs> I think we, we, we need we, we need a microphone. <laughs> 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 I think the, the single identifying number would be a, a, an advantage. As you know, the British systems have often been opposed to identification processes, uh, dating back to the Second World War, I think. Uh, um, but they, we, we don't even carry identity cards in this country. So there's been a real problem in terms of us. We, I know when I was in the US and everybody used to ask me my social security number um, when I did anything. Um, here, nobody even knows what their NHS number is. I mean, most people have no idea. Um, if I asked the British people in this room, nobody would know what their NHS number is. So, so I think that's one of the problems. If we don't have a mechanism of pulling all the data together under a single unified identifying number. You wanted one idea. Uh, I, I think we need a billion pound fund, as Julian was referring to, <laughs> for 100 projects, each funded out of that billion pound fund in the 30 medical schools of this country that took inventions within the university into proof of principle in the NHS. And those 100 projects would be the basis for improvement in quality in all those areas. That one billion pounds isn't in the treasury, but if you went to the Norwegian pension fund that has 48.2 billion euros, under management, they're looking for long-term, high-risk, high-return investment that they can't find. The government is going to their pals in the city saying, can we have 10 million pounds for a little project in the university? And the university doing that. We're not thinking 
big enough again. So that might just that that's would be one thing we could do. One hundred projects funded by one billion pounds. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that does exist. It, of mm. course, it sounds wonderful to say we need another billion pounds, and of course, if you were to give us another billion pounds, <laughs> <coughs> we certainly wouldn't say no to that. But life, reality is life isn't quite as simple as that. Uh, and I, I would add there are some really critical things to do with what you might consider the boring management that actually the government needs to continue to do better on in that. Firstly, the research funders who do work together need to work better and better year by year. Otherwise, you have a completely disjointed and fragmented uh, research system in the UK. So that does happen. Um, it, uh, there's an organization that manages that, but that is um, where the practical management needs to happen. Otherwise, what happens pre-NIHR doesn't join up with the entree into NIHR. And, if, and also, once you've got the proof principle, then where does it go after that? There needs to, you know, the tie between NIHR and the technology strategy board, for example, needs to be. I, I, wouldn't give, I wouldn't give the billion pounds to the NIHR. <laughs> <laughs> I would nice set, up yeah. a, I set up a competing system, okay, and let, let them and look at the, the, the outcome of those. Let I think we, we, need, we need a completely new approach, not simply putting more money into present systems. Can I just uh, respond to what you're saying about I mean, NHS IT is a, a very dangerous space in, in the history uh, has been rather checkered. I'm very glad we don't have ID cards, but we'll hopefully we'll keep not having them. Um, but imagine what would happen if you had a really dis disruptive company trying to implement it, rather than one of the existing large companies. Let's imagine, I'm not proposing this, Google were, were told, take it on, spend a couple of years, see what you can do with it. Does anybody actually think that in a couple of years Google will say, we spent billions on it and it didn't work? Now, stuff would have come out, and I, I don't want Google to do that. I have you know, real concerns about it. But if you've got something like that, if you've got the sort of autonomy or another very disruptive company to try to wrangle it all out, I think you would make huge progress. Not necessarily in every direction you expected, but you get far, far more out. I don't think anyone would have expected what Google had managed to do with data sets. I think one of the real challenges, one of the fundamental problems, is, is a societal distrust of anybody handling data. And one of the real problems we face is this business of having to pseudo-anonymize, of having to collect data in a way that could never, ever be traced back to its potential source. And what we've not been very good at, I don't think, is communicating to the public about how effective research can be in improving their outcomes. In other words, they see research as something that imposes on them rather than adds value to what they're getting. And I, I don't think we've been as effective as we could be in um, communicating um, that. And most people out there would love to participate in research. Yeah, exactly. They don't get the opportunity because there's too many barriers in the way to actually... Yes, but, but there, there is a political system that stops you achieving what you want to achieve, whereby the government are mostly driven by what's going to happen in certain sorts of newspapers about what they say which is encouraging a victimization culture between the Daily Mail and small groups of people. You saw them last night on television about the, uh, the, the, the outcome of the, uh, the, the decisions on whether the police murdered uh, a guy or, or, or not. Small groups of people have massive influence over what's going to be in certain newspapers and on certain television stations, and the governments are more concerned about placating small groups of key voters 
than of having big ideas and, re and reforming the thing by saying, guys, it's very good if we don't have anonymized data or take part in this. Julian, what do you think about that? Um, I mean, I think part of what you say is right. There's clearly too much focus on the Daily Mail and various others. On the other hand, I think it is important to look at privacy because we now have the ability to access vast amounts of data. Once it's out there, it stays out mm -hmm. there. And you, if you start to move away from any sort of anonymization and those protections, then you will lose the public trust. Currently, the public do broadly trust academics. Mm. They do trust people who look after it. Part of the problem is that government has a spectacularly poor record of, of holding data securely. We see, you know, time after time where, you know, whoops, we accidentally, you know, lost a disk with everybody's name and address and all sorts of other things. Most recent one was the Home Office who accidentally put up the Excel spreadsheet of everybody who was applying for asylum in the country. Uh, you know, it wasn't quite everybody, it was a subset of. You know, and as long as government is doing that, and the NHS hasn't been perfect neither, I and many others will say, actually, I do want some protections because there are a lot of people who will have quite reasonable privacy. So you need to, there is a real huge debate about how you make use of the data while protecting privacy of the individual. So I, I wouldn't yeah. go too far on that. And we're not going to solve that today. So, yes, sorry. Uh, let's, let's move on. Yeah. Right. Um, I want to focus on another point that has been brought up, and that is the role of the clinicians um, in the whole uh, process. And um, so I'm a clinician. Uh, I'm also part of a BRU, so I'm research interested and interested in device innovation. Um, and I choose not to take offense uh, to being described as standing in the cath lab and doing the same thing for 10 hours a day. But some days I have to. Uh, and I think that's the point. We're talking about big ideas, and we're talking about experts, and we talk about industry. Now, experts are described as people that know more and more about less and less. So if you want the big picture to come together, you have to have a lot of experts. But you have always to take into account where the need is and where the final solution is going to be implemented. And that's where the clinicians work. That's where the patients are. So Ryan, you mentioned that. In the UK, I think, we're not quite there in having a culture and an infrastructure where innovative minds would have the opportunity and would come across barriers to really think and come together with the experts in an environment where the needs are identified, great ideas uh, can be bred and then implemented, i.e. the NIHR has done a lot to start that but generally, I think, when we think about creating new structures and bringing the research into, well, finally, to the patient, we have to involve clinicians and we have to improve the structures for people that want to do that uh, yeah. kind of work and want to cooperate uh, in science parks or in BRCs or BRUs. I mean, if I can just pick up on the comment you make about enterprise culture within universities. I mean, it is a real challenge. I mean, if, if you've been involved in developing any companies or trying to uh, commercialize ideas and you have meetings with capital venture capitalists and, and a lot of frustration in trying to take things through that is inevitably eating into your time uh, which you might feel guilty that you should be writing grants getting another phd student and etc cetera, etc cetera. and the universities whilst they're quite happy to take the cut from the spin out uh, that might come through from it they still don't have a mechanism at the moment for having, having a tariff for culture and enterprise in terms of recognizing it in appraisal and recognizing it 
in, in what individuals do. If you spend time and days and weeks interacting with industry, and at the end of it, nothing comes of it because the industry doesn't take the risk to do what you're trying to do, that can often be viewed as wasted time. And, and what I was trying to point to briefly was building that culture. We've got three more people, I think, want to do. So my mentor, Dr. Lansky, wanted me to be provocative, so let me do this. So I found it interesting, Professor Martin, that you said the freedom that we have within the university. So I've worked in a basic lab. I've been in Sidney Brenner's lab when my father was on sabbatical there in Cambridge and seen what freedom can do and see what that means. I think it's important that clinicians be involved, but I think it's also important to recognize that in the current way universities are derived, a lot of clinicians don't have a ton of freedom to go and do things. And I think it's important that when you look at the way academics and the way it's changing to involve physicians, not just physicians who are primarily in a basic science lab and have time, have standard funding, but, but clinicians who are primarily seeing patients who are, whose need, the, whose hospital says, bring in the money, see the patients, that's what we need. We need also to have the freedom and the time to do that. I mean, that's, I, don't, I think, you know, the clinician involvement is absolutely essential. If you just have the pure, pure researchers and industry, you'll end up creating a wonderful product, which isn't actually helpful for any patient. Um, but, but that's what, I'm sorry to be slightly off message and talk about another university, but um, that's what we're trying to establish in the south of Cambridge by having three hospitals, including Papworth, there, sharing, for example, gym facilities with pure researchers. With, you know, with, with companies. The idea is very much that what free time people may have, it may not be a structured, I'm now spending this morning interacting with these people. It may be a, a drink after work. It may be over the running machine, you discover the person nearby, you've seen them before somewhere, and. You know, it's having those sorts of chance interactions which can then develop. So you know, that's why co-location, to me, and having those really strong interactions works because it is the unplanned interactions I, you know, I don't, haven't seen evidence on this. I don't know how one could really collect evidence on it. But unplanned interactions seem often to be much more fruitful than the planned ones. Well, one of the, one of the way, reasons you're not having freedom is because the university is thinking, and the hospital, quantitatively and not qualitatively, that you're under pressure to produce income from your patients because your, your chief of cardiology is under pressure from the dean of medicine to produce a certain amount of money. And the Dean of Medicine is under pressure from the Provost of Yale and the President. So I think you've, we've got to get to the top and talk to the, to the President of Yale, to the Provost of University College, saying, look, guys, we have to have a qualitative approach. We have to have respect the, the concept of freedom as a principle. And then look at the implication of that on the quantitative income, which would have to be reduced, but I have to convince them that a certain amount of freedom is better than having more money. It comes back to ideas and not just being driven by small quantitative advances in cash or numbers of patients. Up there. Yeah, yeah. so uh, I represent uh, industry. Yeah, I'm an academic physician, but I spend most of my time running medical affairs and private medical affairs a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> so because I'm it begins with A. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> if you allow me to finish, we're, we're, we're probably risk averse internally. A large percentage of my time is actually spent looking externally, you know, at two different levels. One is early phase investments in a variety of startups, 
And there's no law saying that that startup can't be located in, in a university campus or be a spit out of a university campus. In fact, many of the startups we look at actually contain IP that came out of universities. And then, of course, we look at mature companies to buy so that we have a product or we're near a product that we can market in a year or two. Uh, obviously, we run in a very different in a very different manner from universities. Coming from background of having run a university lab, the big difference is in, in a company, to put it very bluntly, in addition to responsibilities to physicians, to patients, and to employees, we have responsibilities to shareholders. So we need to keep the stock up, we need to keep putting dividend in the pockets of investors, kind investors, who continue to invest in the company around the world. But the fact is that to continue to do that, and to continue to maintain the pipeline, we do continually look at the startup world, uh, and not necessarily in our own space. I mean, you have to keep them, uh, you know, we're, we're in the medical device space, and uh, I'm in the cardiovascular branch of the company, but there are now devices in sleep apnea, there are devices in uh, depression, there are devices in a host of other situations, which are probably going to take off in the next five years, 10 years, and 15 years. So I think it's not so much that we have fixated on a one month or six month or one year time frame. It is that there are different parts of the company that are fixated on different things. Uh, the commercial branch of the company that, as I said, needs to keep the stock up and put money back in the shareholders' pockets is focused on the short term and needs to be focused there. But there are research and development and medical affairs sites of the company that are focused on you know, how to keep that pipeline moving. And I don't see the uh, academia industry collaboration uh, currently as bleak as you do. I, I think it's pretty good. But the fact is that uh, you know it could be better, particularly in this business development aspect. Startup companies approach us all the time. It's not the other way around. Uh, and there is no reason why those startup companies can't be university-based approaching us. Uh, because our job is to listen. Because if this is going somewhere, and at the end of the day is going to move the needle for us, uh, we're going to put money in it. It's as simple as that. <coughs> I just want to point um, out uh, preclinical work in this performance as well. So I'm Paul Weinberg, I'm working on this all the time at Technol with uh, a lot of funding from Technology Strategy for the UK to develop a, uh, a new device. But it, I'm afraid it is just a sort of logical, small, incremental improvement to an existing procedure. However, we still have to go through all the same stages. Now, I was um, interested that Alexander specifically spoke about those big clinical partnerships and performance of them. So not getting it from the UK folk, and I, and I do wonder if it's part of a sort of a historical issue we have about uh, you know a small number of activists in the world of animal testing. But there, you know, between academia and the clinical world is the very important uh, preclinical activity that in fact I spoke to one uh, one other person who this morning kind of see Mark Rice it's absolutely the place of all the rest of these companies. Bloody hope so. So I think you're absolutely right. Can you hear me in the back? I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, the key thing here, I think, 
um, engaging academia and actually being able to do this is to touch on all the points, right? You don't want to just deal with bioengineering and just with the clinical aspects, you want to be able to fill in all the gaps. And we've certainly, we certainly understand that. We certainly look at, while that expertise may not be internal, it's absolutely critical in the process, and we all understand that. So those partnerships are vital for, for the success of such an enterprise. Yeah, so two more questions, uh, one, one over there and then here, yeah. I think that's dead right, and uh, where, whenever I've been successful, I have worked outside the structures of the university. Uh, and and I, I often say to my colleagues, we're running a university within a university, and uh, I don't know what, what, the, what the administration thinks of that, but you're, de you're dead right. I think we've got to do more of that. We need a little bit more anarchy in the university. I don't want people to go away from coffee to coffee thinking that it's not working. I mean, I think our tech transfer uh, setups and our organizations around tech transfer and, and business partnerships, it's, it's just transformed in the last five years. I mean, it's these, I, I, these, I agree with that. I agree it, with it's that, but it much stronger. Sure, but I think it does take a bit of time. And I, I think, I think you'll find it's well recognized. <coughs> Those of us who are uh, actively managing that, it feels like the fourth bridge used to be in that, you know, you keep painting it and by the time you get to the end, of course, something else has happened. And, and every time we identify a roadblock in the system and we fix it, of course, what that then does is it unearths the next roadblock. Um, so if I can provide any reassurance, it's firstly that it's well recognized and a number of us are on the case and uh, many of us uh, including many of my team, have worked in multiple centres, both sectors, both on the industry side as well as the government side, um, and bring multiple perspectives to solving those problems. Uh, first, it's recognised. Secondly, we're actively managing. Um, and thirdly, we ask you to um, work with us on that and helping identify problems, because often you'll alert us to the next Okay, process. Last, last point here. Briefly. I'm Maurice Bookbinder. I'm from uh, California. And I was uh, invited here to be slightly controversial, so I'm pleased <laughs> with my role. Please all your mates. <laughs> you know, it, it, excellent presentations today, very informative. But it reminds me, after 30 years of being in this business, of trying to do university and industry with startups and innovation, that we are full circle back and looking back from the from the U.S. perspective. We started 20 years ago where you want to, where you are today, and where you want to be. And we have made full circle the other way, where something has not been even described, which is conflict of interest in these partnerships. 
how do you deal with conflict of interest, which has really had the crux of everything else. And I'm a refugee of the university system because we are unable to do the work we need to do within the university to create innovation. So your dream has to include some sort of solutions to this problem. How do you propose it? Okay, we have. Uh, it's too late now, but perhaps in the summing up tomorrow, we can come back to conflict of interest, which is a very important point. Thank you very much. Well, be open and be proud of the fact that you're doing innovation. In